Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. All right, so we were talking about the Alberta Court of Appeal, which is the top court in the province, having ruled, having determined that the Trudeau government's Impact Assessment Act is unconstitutional, and the court said the law may put the provinces into a, quote, economic chokehold, end quote, by regulating provincial natural resources. Scott Moe is the Premier of Saskatchewan, and uh, the Premier joins us. Premier, thank you very much for the time. What's the significance of the Alberta Court of Appeal decision and uh, Saskatchewan's intervener status in all of this? Well, it's extremely significant. I, I think on on many many levels. You know, one on uh, it does uh, give us the ability as Canadians to to develop our our natural resources, which are the most sustainable in the world. Too, uh, it does uh, stop uh, the uh, the federal overreach that we are seeing time and time again into provincial areas of jurisdiction, which I think is likely the most significant uh, the, the significant uh, piece uh, of this ruling. And and listen. Credit to Jason Kenney, uh, to Premier Kenney and the UCP uh, government in Alberta for uh, putting together this uh, this this reference case uh, in in the province of Alberta, and uh, we're pleased to see it turn out the way it did. We intervened on, on the side of the UCP uh, government in Alberta and, and Premier Kenney, and but all the credit goes to goes to the the Alberta government for bringing this forward and uh, bringing it forward in a successful manner. Uh, Premier Mo, as you know, Mr. Trudeau seems comfortable, seems to be that the Supreme Court will side with his government and set aside the Alberta court decision. If that happens, what's the potential outcome here? Is this Does this potentially impact on national unity? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, one of those bills uh, that where the federal government has been, in, in essence, trying to, to circumvent the Constitution uh, to uh, change the, the division of powers uh, that we have. Uh, natural resource development is, is specifically in uh, the provincial jurisdiction. Bill C-69, uh, as this ruling says, is an invasion uh, into that uh, just that jurisdiction. This bill is nothing short of a of a politically charged wrecking ball uh, in in the nation of Canada. And again, um, we're going to be there uh, intervening on on if this should go to the Supreme Court. Um, most certainly supporting uh, Premier Kenny, the uh, the Alberta UCP government, and the the the, the decision that that occurred in Alberta. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, on the requirement? And I think it's a requirement. I think we've, we know this. The world needs oil. It needs natural gas. This has been really clearly demonstrated over the last two months. What is, uh, what's your sense about the federal government even going, given these circumstances, going to the Supreme Court of Canada and trying to overrule and overturn the decision of the Alberta court? Well, they should ask themselves, as a, you know, a government that is there to put, you know, that is expected to represent all Canadians. Why do you keep finding yourself in the Supreme Court of Canada uh, with so many provinces time and time again? And the answer is, be, is because they're trying to tip the scales uh, and, and change the Constitution, essentially, with the acts uh, just like this, the Impact Assessment Act. And, you know, uh, Canada, and I'll speak specifically to Saskatchewan, but the same can be said for Alberta and Newfoundland. We produce some of the most sustainable oil, yes, but many of the other products that we produce that are impacted by this act are are also the most sustainable in, in the world. Saskatchewan potash, Saskatchewan uranium, rare earth elements that we're developing uh, in, in this nation to 
you know, to, to build batteries for the, the transition that is occurring. Other nations, and I've just been in a few the last month, uh, they are developing their resources and they're using that wealth to fund that transition. In Canada, our federal government is intent on uh, essentially trying to destroy these industries uh, before we're able to use utilize that wealth as Canadians to, uh, to, to to fund what needs to happen in the, in the next 10 or 20 years. And so it, it really is, is no planning or nor, no foresight, foresight as to what we need to do. And in the meantime, uh, creating these deep divisions between uh, areas of Canada. This is the most of federal government in, in my lifetime, and, and they, they really need to have a look in the mirror. So as the world agonizes over Russia's brutality in Ukraine, there has been a great deal of silence over the non-stop assaults on the tortures and the murders taking place in Afghanistan. It continues, and you know it because we've talked about it a great deal. But it really hasn't gotten the national and international attention that it requires. It doesn't just deserve, it requires it. The Taliban are hunting down and killing Afghans and their families who worked with the Canadian Armed Forces as interpreters. And what is Canada's federal government doing to left to help the uh, interpreters? Left Behind Alex has been on the air with me for probably 10 years, maybe longer. Alex was an interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces last time he was on. Uh, with General Dean Milner, we had uh, the commanding officer of the PPCLI unit that Alex worked with, and we heard how highly the officer thinks of, not only thought of, but thinks of Alex. And uh, his dream has been, he's told us many times, his dream has been to come to Canada. Yes, he was served as an interpreter for a U.S. forces and other forces on on our side who were fighting the insurgents, but his love for this country is unmatched, and his dream is to come here. And he said to me, on the air and off the air, I'm not going to do this without having a visa. I'm not just going to walk into Canada and say, accept me because I'm here. I want to get the visa, and I want to do it properly. Alex, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Roy? Good to have you again. Yeah, good to talk to you. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing well. Texas is so hot. Temperature is high here. Well, yeah, you're you're in the United States. I didn't mention that you actually got into the United States and you did it on your own through a program the Americans had. But you really want to come to Canada? Yes, of course. Yeah, just had a baby, so congratulations yeah. on that. So uh, uh, now I have two babies. I got two babies. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. So we need to get you and the babies and your wife into this country. Also with us is Major General Dean Milner. Uh, the general was the last commanding officer of the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. And General Milner has and continues to work daily to bring the CAF interpreters and their families to Canada and save them from slaughter by the Taliban. General Milner, how are you? And thank you for the time, sir. Always good to talk to you, Roy. And uh, good to hear your voice, Alex. And uh, congratulations you, on your second baby as well uh, i sure do hope that Thank we you. can get you into canada here i sure do hopefully general hopefully what's the situation one. like on the ground in afghanistan for the interpreters and their families right now what's it like oh it's, it's absolutely miserable it, it gets worse by the day uh the taliban are not effectively running the country and they're still as you mentioned I, they're still hunting down 
um, interpreters and those that work for us. Um, they're relentless. Uh, I've had interpreters that work for me. Uh, they've had their brothers found. Uh, they've been taken away from them. I mean, the situation is, is, is horrible. It's, it's getting worse by the day. So, I mean, we, we've got, our government's got to continue to, 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 to work on getting the Afghans out. And, uh, we're just, I just not seeing the sense of urgency. As you said, we're seeing the, the focus on, on other, uh, Things. Yes, I understand uh, the Ukraine, but still, I mean, we can do two things at once. We hear the minister talk about it, but we're just not seeing action. Yeah, we did have a prime minister say, you were there for us, so we're there for you. And so let me quote the license plate from Missouri. Show me. That's what they need to do. General, Did I? am I overstating it if I say that interpreters and their families... So the interpreters and uh, their spouses, uh, their kids, their immediate and extended families, if they are discovered, and they're being hunted by the Taliban, if they're discovered, are they being tortured and murdered? Is it overstating you to say that? Uh, I, I, it's not. I mean, that's absolutely the focus. The, the Taliban always um, they were, hated our presence. They hated anybody that worked. Uh, for the international community. So, yeah, that's absolutely what they're doing. They don't feel comfortable with their presence. And so that, that's, you know, that's more of, more of a reason, complete reason why we need to get them out of there. We just, we cannot stop. We've got to continue to focus on it. Uh, the government did give us some money. They're not enabled, they're not able to expedite any kind of plans. So we continue to work it daily. Um, we slowed down our process because we we're running out of money, um, but uh, they've now given us some money. So, yeah, we need to continue to, to bring them out, irregardless of what's happening, and, and even more so because the Taliban are never going to stop. They're going to continue to hunt um, and, until they're happy that they've, they've gotten rid of all those that work for us. Yeah, so we have a federal government that's doing nothing. Essentially nothing. They've given you some money, but they're not really active as far as getting the interpreters and their families out of danger, out of uh, threat to their lives and threats that are being carried out through torture and murder. But you, General, and, uh, and, and people with you, uh, Canadians with you, are working daily on the ground to help and safeguard the, the interpreters. Tell us about your organization and what is it, what is it that you're doing? Well, it, we've got a great organization teamed up with a few other organizations, and uh, you know we've we've got connections. We've got people on the ground, and uh, you know we are we're working with IRCC. One of the most complicated um, things that we do is is try to move the paperwork along because, as you know, they cannot do it without the pay, paperwork, the the passports, the visas, and that process is still not gotten any easier. I mean, they, Immigration Canada has hired a number of more folks, but it still doesn't seem to be anything better. And then once we get the paperwork uh, completed, which is, is, a, is a challenging process, then we have our contacts and our people on the ground that then move them out. Uh, one of the only ways that we can do that is, is through Pakistan, and that's become challenging. Uh, but it's it's a significant process. It, it takes a, a team here uh, on the ground in Canada and a team over in Afghanistan, and it takes uh, it takes complete effort around 
round the clock to move people. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, and again, we're just, we're just not going to stop until, uh, you know, until we either completely run out of money or, or we've, we've gotten all the, the thousands out that we still need to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Thank you, General. Um, Alex, uh, Sajad, when you hear General Milner talk about this and what they're doing, what are you thinking about? What you, you, you have family still in Afghanistan, and you've told us in the past that you are concerned for the safety and the security of your family because the Taliban are looking for them. Yes, sir. Uh, well, first of all, I would like to thank General D. Milner's uh, efforts and their team and their organization. What they're doing is awesome. They're saving lives, and that means a lot to everyone. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, recently I moved my family to uh, Poland. So I have my parents in Poland. My brother is in Abu Dhabi, like stranded, waiting for no flights. I mean, he's just waiting over there. And I'm all I'm all desperate, you know. My parents in Poland, I'm here. My brother is in Abu Dhabi. I got a couple of folks back in Afghanistan. It's I mean, life is just challenging. Sometimes it's gonna get like more challenging for someone. But I don't I don't think it's gonna last. I have hope that one day it's gonna change. One day there will be something good happening. So I'm hopeful that I can get to Canada one day. You know, I, I just don't want to stay, but I want to re- re- remind it again to the listeners. I don't want to walk into Canada. I know I have a green card, and I can stay over there. No, I want to have the visa. I want to be treated equally. The Canada government treated the rest of the interpreters. Let's say they came, they came to Canada a long time ago. The problem was that the process ended very soon. And so it's, I mean, weird for me because the United States still has the program ongoing. I don't know what's happening here. Yeah, so the Americans have a program that allows interpreters who worked with their forces to move to the United States, which they've allowed you to do, and they've had that program in place for many years. The Canadian program was in place for just under two years, I think. And if you weren't aware of it... yeah. But if you were out in the field and you yeah, weren't aware of it, then and you weren't I was aware. On the field. Yeah, I you was weren't in aware. The field. Nobody has contacted me. No one has informed me. You know, like there is a there, there is a program ongoing for the Canadian interpreters that they can go to Canada. No one informed me. I was unaware. I was on the front line with the United States military personnel, and yeah, that's what happened. You know, General Miller. Here's the question. Is it possible? Can the government do this if they if they really set their sights on it and they put their resources to use? Yeah, plenty of resources. Can they do it? Well, I mean, I they should be able to do it. They say they're going to do it. The, the prime minister says they're going to do it. Um, they keep talking forty thousand. Uh, I just don't understand why the bureaucratic process is not able to actually put it into action. It's very disappointing uh, for, uh, for, for, for me, the rest of the team, uh, to see the Afghans going through such a difficult situation. 
Uh, we're even offering more help. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's very, very disturbing, disappointing. You know, Alex's situation should be simple. I mean, it should be absolutely simple. And I, and I just don't understand why it, it is so complicated and they're, and they're not able to action it. I really don't. Well, it really speaks to the issue, does it not? If they will not, it's not they can't, they will not bring Alex into Canada. He's in the United States right now. Our, our closest ally, our neighbor, they could reach out and just say, you know, you meet all the, all the criteria. You were an interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces. You have been endorsed by Canadian military officers and, and soldiers you worked with. And so you meet the, the criteria. So we're going to bring you into Canada. He's right there in the United States and they still won't do it. I, I, Roy, I, I, you know what? I really don't know what to say. I mean, this uh, this country is very capable, but there's quite quite a few things that just are not getting actioned as fast as they should. Uh, I mean, I could go on about the Ukraine. I think we should be doing ten times more than we're doing in the Ukraine. And uh, but uh, yeah, I, it, I I know that they're capable of doing it, and so that's why our team is going to carry on. Uh, and we're going to keep, keep pulling Afghans out until until we can't, and we've you know we've expended all our energy doing it. So, well, you're amazing, and uh, you are truly the people who represent this country, and in this case, you represent this country far better than its federal government. Alex, I'm going to give you the final word. We have about a minute. Go ahead, please. Say what you want to say. Well, I, all I want to say is. Uh, once again, I'm going to thank uh, General D. Milner's uh, effort and their team, uh, their organization, and also I uh, would like to thank uh, you as well, Roy, Joe Warmington, Charles Adler, and the rest of the team, you know, I mean, actually, overall, the media. And my final word is, like, hopefully I can come to Canada one day and live there for good with my family. So last weekend, when Mariupol Ukraine Member of Parliament Dmitry Gurin was a guest, and he's with us quite frequently on the program, Mr. Gurin is very generous with his time, I asked him about the Prime Minister's visit to uh, Ukraine that day, and Mr. Gurin acknowledged that Mr. Trudeau had been there. You can listen to it, the interviews at RoyGreenShow.com. He acknowledged Mr. Trudeau had been there, but he didn't really pay that much attention. He just carried on. But what was really important to Mr. Gurin is the Ukrainian-Canadian diaspora, the Ukrainian-Canadian community, and the support that the people of Ukraine are receiving from the Ukrainian-Canadian diaspora. So I was thinking about that and how Canadians of Ukraine descent are living with, dealing with, addressing the Russian invasion. Um, also, I was, I've been wondering about this. Is there word from Canadians who made their way to Ukraine to fight alongside the Ukraine military? And I said this to you earlier, and you can find it on Dr. Anders Aslund Twitter feed, uh, at Anders Aslund, the former economic advisor to both Russia and Ukraine, years apart in, uh, the 1990s, and Dr. Aslund despises Vladimir Putin. But um, I, I was quoting a, one of his tweets. Uh, 
And the chief of intelligence for the Ukraine military, 36 years old, Major General, said that his assessment is, and his intelligence department's assessment is, that by the time we get to August, the Ukraine military will have really turned around the war and really will be handing it to the Russians, really, really hurting them badly, even more than doing now. And he expects that by the end of the year that there'll be very little fighting left because the Russians will have lost. And he said, well, the Russians are just hordes of people with guns. They're not militarily particularly adept. Uh, we've talked several times on this program with Mr. Boris Rizhnevsky. He's a former Toronto area liberal member of parliament who sat beside Mr. Trudeau as Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed Canada's parliament about what, six weeks ago. And Mr. Rizhnevsky told us in our first conversation that he was um, contacted by Canadians who were intent on joining the fight against Russia with the Ukraine military. Mr. Vrzhnevsky is back with us. Boris, how are you? Well, as most uh, Ukrainian Canadians, uh, we, uh, we just take it day by day and do everything that we can. It must be really so painful for everyone of Ukraine descent in Canada, particularly those of you who have family connections still, maybe family living in Ukraine and trying to stay in touch and trying to somehow um, maintain a connection and maybe get people into this country. Can you talk to us about that? Well, it is quite personal for many of us. Um, and it's not just personal uh, for myself. There are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Ukrainian Canadians that have family. And you're quite right. Uh, we try to stay in touch. I have family members uh, that are out fighting on the front. Uh, so we cannot stay in touch. And then on my wife's side, we have family members that are currently under occupation that we haven't heard from uh, for weeks. So it's quite personal. Uh, we, uh, you do have those moments of anxiety, uh, but we try to keep, as, as the British say, a stiff upper lip and keep working uh, towards the ultimate goal, and that is victory in Ukraine. Um, you are in the food industry, and I want to talk to you about that in, in a minute from the perspective of the difficulties and the threat that exists to food security globally. We've spoken with uh, our good friend, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, uh, at Food Presser on, uh, on Twitter from Dalhousie University about that. But before we get into that, let me come back to what you just heard General Hillier say to me two weeks ago. General Milner said, today, Canada can and should be doing more for Ukraine militarily. What do you think? Absolutely. Uh, uh, General Hillier is absolutely correct, as are the other gentlemen. And uh, it was uh, quite diplomatic the way uh, the Ukrainian MP, Dmitry uh, Gurin, the way he Put it. He he was uh, he wasn't unkind in his commentary when it came to the Canadian government, and of course uh, he was very warm in his remarks when it came to Ukrainian Canadians. Uh, look, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainian Canadians making a difference, each in their uh, particular way, whether it's 
sending funds, whether it's uh, sending family members who are on the front uh, helmets, uh, flak jackets, uh, through various organizations. Just this past week, the Ukrainian World Congress, through funding mostly that came from uh, Ukrainian Canadians, uh, supplied $5 million of helmets and flak jackets uh, to uh, Kiev, which went to units that were heading out to the front in the Donbass region and in Kharkiv. Um, and it's, uh, it is a contrast um, to how the Canadian government has reacted. Uh, I'm glad that our Prime Minister uh, and ministers uh, uh, finally visited uh, uh, Kiev. Uh, but uh, let's be clear, it was a month after uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson showed uh, true grit and uh, showed up in cave. And there had been a virtual parade of European leaders uh, once uh, uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, had made that trip. Uh, and uh, it's, it just seems that we're always late um, and uh, we need to turn that around. Having said that, uh, Ukrainian Canadians have, uh, in many cases, uh, gone ahead and done the things that we hoped that uh, our government would do. And let's, let's be really clear here. Everyone expected Ukraine to collapse in a matter of days. And in the ruins of Ukraine, you would have seen the ruins of the international rules-based order. Ukraine... Yes has saved the international rules-based order. Ukraine has sent a clear message, not just to the Kremlin, but to China when it comes to Taiwan, uh, to other uh, autocrats uh, around the world. And Ukraine is shielding, the brave soldiers in Ukraine are shielding the North Atlantic democratic space. That is the reality, and that's why uh, General Hillier is absolutely correct. We need to get those arms to Ukrainian soldiers. They've proven their abilities. Uh, I've visited uh, the training center uh, in Yavoriu a number of times in the past. Uh, Ukrainian, uh, Canadian officers were so laudatory of the soldiers they were training. Their ability to pick up the skill sets, their determination, their stamina. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating listening to the Canadian officers and sh- soldiers training the Ukrainians and uh, just being so, so laudatory uh, when it came to their abilities. And uh, we're seeing uh, that uh, reality in Ukraine right now uh, and the opposite on the Russian, uh, the Russian side. Um, no resolve, uh, poorly trained. Uh, it's, it's more reminiscent of a, uh, a, a horde that loots and pillages. Yes, it is. You know, it was that, there was a microcosmic moment. It was that Russian Black Sea flagship that approached Snake Island and ordered the rush the uh, the Ukrainian border guards to surrender, and they told that uh, Russian crew what they could do. They died, but they did not give up. And that was that was a moment I think I think Boris that that really presaged what was going to happen. That was that took the kind of courage. I don't know how people muster, how those border guards mustered. But that must have been one of those moments as well for the people of Ukraine who said, hey, 
we're going to fight. We're not going to roll over. We're going to fight. You're absolutely correct. And anyone that was in contact and speaking with family and friends knew the deep resolve that Ukrainians had that they would fight till the end. And uh, you, you're quite correct also uh, when, when you said this presaged uh, uh, the resolve, but there's also uh, something else that's quite ominous that I'm sure uh, that uh, the Kremlin has taken note of. Uh, most of your readers may be aware of this, that that very same uh, flagship, the Moskva, with that symbolically important name, the Moskva, was sunk yes. by the Ukrainian army. And that is an incredible omen of where this war is heading for Mr. Putin. Yeah, rightly so. Rightly so. And let's talk about something that I know is extremely important to you. As we said, you're in the food industry. You own a bakery in Toronto. What's the name of the bakery? Future Bakery. Okay. Future Bakery? F-U-T-U-R-E? F-U-T-U-R-E? Correct. Okay, right. Future Bakery. No, uh, I know where I'm buying Future in a new land. My grandparents chose that name. Great. Well, I know where I'm going to be buying my bread now. So, <laughs> Boris, you're aware of, keenly, since you're in the industry, and you're a former politician, so you have your fingers on the pulse, the global food supply chain issues, the challenges that are going to be faced because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I know you want to talk about that. Absolutely. I've been raising this issue since mid-January, uh, and you're quite correct. Being in the food industry uh, and of Ukrainian uh, heritage, we, we understand the importance that Ukraine has played through the centuries. Ukraine used to be the breadbasket of, of Europe. Today, Ukraine is a major source country, one of the key, probably one of the five most important countries, food producers for the world. And there, uh, there are global consequences. Uh, I was raising this issue uh, back in January, February, before the start of the war. Uh, I gave some specific examples, the fact that, for instance, in Lebanon, 35% of the population's caloric intake comes from Ukrainian agriculture. Uh, over 40% of Libya's wheat, 20% of Yemen's wheat, 20% of Bangladeshi wheat, uh, Egypt, it, it continues. So some of the most uh, uh, politically unstable regions of the Middle East, Africa, uh, Asia, and also uh, food uh, 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 countries that are food challenged. And uh, if Ukraine's, at, and at that time I was saying, if Ukraine's ports cannot export those agricultural commodities, wheat, sunflower oil, etc., there will be a very significant global food shortage. We're seeing the beginnings of that this last week in the United States. Yep. Baby That's formula right. has disappeared off the shelves because right. there is a lack of cereals in the global market. By the fall, we will see hunger and starvation in some of these uh, regions of the world. And what is critically important, we are constantly talking about NATO, and absolutely NATO is of, of great importance, uh, and that North Atlantic um, democratic space. 
But we will see starvation unless the Port of Odessa is declared an internationally protected port because of its key role in the international global food supply chain. Let's talk to the perceived front-runner in the pursuit of the Conservative Party of Canada leadership. Pierre Polyev joins us. We just talked about that debate last Tuesday, but maybe we don't have to get into that. Mr. Polyev, how are you? Like, just, just give me 20 seconds about that debate. How did you feel about it? Well, terrible moderator, terrible format, uh, but I still managed to get my message out, which is that I want to give people back control of their lives by making Canada the freest country on earth. Yeah. You were just missing those little white balls. You got the paddles, but they didn't give you those little white plastic balls. That's what you should have had. Anyway, anyway. It was pretty ridiculous. I was waiting for him to ask me uh, what my favorite flavored ice cream was. Uh, the whole thing was so silly. But okay. anyway, onward we move. Absolutely. You're the subject of op-eds and attacks, certainly since Tuesday's leadership debate, because of your Bank of Canada comments and your statement you'd fire the Bank of Canada governor. Now, it's not the first time a Bank of Canada governor has been challenged. Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin's Liberals did that with John Crow, who they didn't fire when Chrétien became prime minister, but the Liberals didn't appoint Mr. Crow for a second term. So let's just set that to one side, and I'll ask you this. Based on the response there's been, do you think you miscalculated um, with your reaction to the Bank of Canada declaration, or do you think the Canadian voters will agree with you and discount attacks in the media? Well, I think uh, that the attacks in the media prove that I'm right. Uh, we have, uh, a, a, you know, it's funny. A waitress or a welder would get fired if they didn't do their job. And yet this big-shot banker is supposedly immune from that. Uh, he has one job keep inflation low at 2%. Instead, it's 6.7% because of act actions that he agreed to implement on behalf of the government. He printed $400 billion in two years. One in every four, every $5 in our economy today was created since 2020. And more dollars chasing fewer goods has led to higher prices. Worse than that, he's inflated a... It's not just that like food prices are unaffordable. People can't afford to gas their cars. He's inflated a massive housing bubble, which threatens to burst once rates rise. Um, and he did this because Justin Trudeau wanted to be able to spend uh, uh, recklessly. Now, his job was to say, no, Mr. Prime Minister, I'm not going to print money for you to spend. My job is to keep inflation low, and I will not allow you to interfere with my independence. Instead, he agreed to do it. And now working single moms are having to skip meals because food is too expensive. Uh, a miner I met in northern Ontario can't drive to see his dying parents one last time because he can't afford gas for his car. And we have 32-year-olds living in their parents' basement. Somebody has to be held accountable for that. In the real world, when you do your job badly, when you harm other people, when you break your, your with your job description, you get fired. Well, we're going to bring the real world to Ottawa. Okay, so if you become the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and we take all the things that you just pointed out, and they're still in front of you. They're still issues. Now we're paying over $2 a litre for gasoline. That's just impossible for so many people to be able to afford. Um, how, do you, how do you address this? How do you challenge this from the position of opposition leader, official opposition leader, when you know you're dealing with the alliance of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh? 
Yeah, I mean, we have to stand up to it. And I'll be very clear in my agenda. I'm going to eliminate the carbon tax to make fuel more affordable. I'm going to um, uh, reverse the inflation by making government more affordable. Um, and that means uh, eliminating Trudeau's $100 billion slush fund, getting rid of his multi-billion dollar infrastructure bank, um, defunding the CBC to save a billion dollars, and bringing in a pay-as-you-go law that requires government find a dollar in savings for every new dollar of spending so that we can... It's tied for three years, essentially. Well, uh, good question. How do we how do we address the coalition? I think we need to mount pressure on backbench Liberal and NDP MPs in order to um, break them off from the coalition and force an, an election, because if we don't, uh, then we'll be stuck with them for three years and they're going to totally bankrupt the country. Uh, so if you have a Liberal or a New Democrat as your member of Parliament, you should call them and tell them to break from this coalition that they never promised that they would do. And in fact, they said they wouldn't do. And uh, and we, they should be representing you in Parliament, not, not this uh, Trudeau thing coalition. All right. I want to ask you to put some context to what I'm about to say. This was raised during Tuesday's debate, namely the Ottawa truckers convoy presence. Justin Trudeau, who left Ottawa for an undisclosed location, supposedly over security concerns, eventually reaching for the Emergencies Act. Mr. Singh, who tweeted conservative MPs support for the truckers was by extension support for white supremacy. Can you put context to that, please? And where and how do you fit into this equation? It was all part of the Tuesday debate. Yeah, well, I say the same thing I said before they, the truckers even arrived, which is I stand with all the peaceful, law-abiding truckers who were fighting for their livelihoods and liberties um, and by protesting on Parliament Hill. While I condemn any individuals... It's possible to simultaneously hold individuals responsible for their conduct, while uh, at the same time acknowledging that almost everyone else uh, behaved very well, and they were there for the reason that the Trudeau government had taken away their jobs. And look, here's the reality. Um, The truckers were the least likely people to spread a virus. They're alone all day in a truck. To force a mandate on them um, was not based in science, as, as, as the public health uh, um, officer admitted, um, it was based in politics. Uh, there is no need to impose this mandate, and it cost thousands of hardworking truckers their livelihoods. No wonder they went to Ottawa to protest. And I, I, I will stand with the working class people who, frankly, have been demolished in this country over the last two years, and the political elite who, who attack the uh, the truckers and other working class people, many of them didn't sacrifice anything through COVID. They were comfortable working on their keyboards and their mansions as their property values went up, while working class people got demolished. And it's time that someone actually spoke up for those people. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, small business community are crushed. Okay, cryptocurrency. Mr. Polyev, you're being accused by your fellow candidates for the Conservative Party leadership, particularly Patrick Brown, of saying one thing, when there's online evidence of you espousing exactly the opposite. What do you say to Mr. Brown and the other candidates who accuse you of that? Well, there again, Patrick Brown is lying. My position is that people should have the freedom to use Bitcoin or related technologies um, if they so choose. I don't think that 
the government should subsidize it or require it, but it, nor should it be banned like it is in communist China, and people should be allowed to, to use it uh, as they uh, as they as long as they're following the law and paying the relevant taxes on their transactions, uh, let them do it. Um, Patrick Brown is one to speak about flip-flops. When he ran for PC leader in Ontario, he said he was against the carbon tax. Well, then he became leader and embraced the carbon tax. He said that he was a um, pro-life social conservative to get the leadership. And after that was over, he said social conservatives were um, intolerant dinosaurs. Um, and uh, he was found guilty of breaking the, F- the Integrity Act in Ontario for covering up a secret payment he received of over $300,000 to finance his $2 million waterfront home. Um, That is his record of lying to the public. And so you can't believe a word Patrick Brown says. Well, it'd be interesting to have both of you engaged in a debate on this program. Maybe we can arrange that going forward. Maybe, maybe not. Um, How would you accomplish this? Setting aside C-69 which is the actual uh, terminology is the Impact Assessment Act, uh, which the Alberta Court of Appeal this week declared to be unconstitutional, and then C-48, the West Coast tanker ban, as well as delivering on pipelines and the export of Canadian oil and natural gas to countries other than the United States. They need it now. You'd be the opposition leader, prime minister. What would you do as opposition leader? What would you do as prime minister? Well, I would repeal C-69 and C-48. Um, C-69 is the Anti-Energy Act, prevents us from building pipelines or expanding our energy sector. Meanwhile, it welcomes uh, 130,000 barrels of overseas oil every single day to Canada. Um, and uh, that means money leaving our country to polluting foreign dictatorships. So I will um, uh, bring in a, a new process to consult First Nations, protect the environment, but get projects uh, decided on quickly uh, within a year and a half. I'll also um, approve Newfoundland's plan to expand its oil production by 400,000 barrels a day to replace the overseas oil we bring in off the East Coast so that within five years of forming government, I can ban overseas oil from Canada altogether. We'll take my dollars from dictators and turn it into paychecks for our people. Okay, one last thing. In about three minutes, I'm going to be speaking with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, who's actually on the line, can hear you right now. And uh, the Premier stands with the Alberta Court of Appeal. Saskatchewan had intervener status in that particular case, as you know. And tomorrow, I'm going to be speaking with the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, about this particular piece of legislation and the fact that Mr. Kenney is going to be addressing the United States Senate Energy Committee. What do you have to say to Premier, Premier Moe and Premier Kenney? Keep up the fight. Um, I'm very proud of the uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan governments for challenging this unconstitutional law in the court. Apparently, the judges agreed with them. Um, and uh, by the way, there I understand there are a number of First Nations interveners are also fighting against 269 because they see it as a, an attack on their um, rights uh, to develop resources on their own ancestral lands. Um, so it is a real coalition of First Nations people working-class Canadians, premiers who are fighting this law. We need to get it overturned in court so that we can produce Canadian energy and build Canadian pipelines with Canadian steel. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.